Good morning. It's really good to see you all again. Appreciate the opportunity to bring the Word of God to you. If you would open your Bibles with me to uh, two different texts, the first being Romans chapter 11. Thank you. A few weeks ago, as I was teaching through Revelation on the Wednesday night uh, class, this text was prominent at some point, I forget where it was in which chapter of Revelation, um, and that week as I was praying and studying and I read this, this text, it was like the Lord just gripped my heart with it. Um, and I'm going to continue today in what I began last week. It's, you're going to find it, it's not going to be even anywhere similar in some senses, um, because Matt's here today. Uh, it, it's, it's, but it's going to be what I, I would think, I'm almost doing this in the reverse in a sense, because what I'm going to be speaking to you about today is the, in my mind, the foundation that allows us to live the way that I was talking about last week. This text is one of, I believe, one of the most powerful, beautiful, of all the many beautiful and powerful texts in the New Testament and in the Bible. This one, I think, is Supreme. And I want to begin in verse 33 um, and then read through verse 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And then this is the verse. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And as Kat was leading worship today, we sang that sense of this reality just again and again and again. Great. Great, great is our God. And then the scripture Matt read. And one that is like it, but expressed a little differently, is Colossians 1. If you would turn there with me. Verses 15 and 16. And whereas Romans 11 spoke of God in a kind of a generic sense, Paul now zeroes in on whom he was really speaking of in the Romans 11 text specifically. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, listen now, listen, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. Father, we continue in our worship today through opening the word of God. Our hearts, Lord, are lifted so far above the things of the earth. And for that, we are grateful. We thank you today for the privilege of feeding our soul, our spirit, our inner man on these truths. 
And even as we do, we know that it brings healing to our bodies physically because the Word of God is life to us. We know that it heals our minds, it heals our emotions as we are made more and more like Jesus, transformed into his, his image. And so we worship you and we thank you today. In the name of Jesus, Father, amen. In a world of chaos and change, some things, thank God, always remain the same. And those things are what are centered truths in Christ, those truths that ground us, those truths that give us bearing, as the writer to the Hebrews says, that he becomes the anchor of our souls. And so we are today going to be caught up in a sense with Paul as he is caught up in God. And as I was thinking this week, I realized that theology always begins with praise and it always ends with praise. It's, it, it begins with this sense of awe as, we, as you study the truth of who God is and it will inevitably end with worship and with praise as you understand it more and more. I can't tell you how many times in all of my many years of teaching the Word of God and preparing and studying, I've ended in tears and just in worship and in awe of God. And then you feel undone and you almost feel like, as Matt said, as he took communion today, what, there's nothing more to say. And when reading a text like we just read and singing the songs like we sang this morning, there really is very little that I need to say, but I'm still going to say it. Because I got nothing to lose. Thank you. <laughs> I need a shirt like that. Last week I spoke to you about the need to understand the very simple but very profound and I believe absolutely important truth that we have neglected and lost to some degree in the church today, that all things, all things are to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, both in our lives and through our lives and through the church, ultimately. And I actually read a quote to you by J.I. Packard, and Packard, and in the quote, he basically said at the end of it, he said, we have become passionless, we have become passive, and he said, and I fear we have become prayerless. Because we have lost our way in, in understanding who we are as the people of God. And I will say to you, I will add one more P to his alliteration. I will say the reason that those previous three P's are true is because we have lost our purpose, our sense of purpose. And I want to say to you today that what we're going to be looking at in these two texts gives us clarity as to what is really happening around us in the world why it is happening, and the purpose, listen, the purpose to which it is happening and for which it is happening. So with this beautiful doxology, doxa meaning simply glory, and speaking of glory is what the word doxology means, speaking of the glories of God, of Christ. With this incredibly beautiful doxology, Paul gives us the truths that sustain us through life and keep us from living a purposeless life. I was thinking this morning as I was praying how, and I want to say this to the younger people in the room. When I was young, I realized I didn't think at all much about what was going on in the world around me. 
I do remember um, the possibility of a nuclear war in the 60s because they were building underground bunkers in a lot of backyards in Colorado where I grew up. And in, in school during the day, we would have to do uh, natural uh, nuclear bomb drills where we would get under a desk and away from a window as that, that, so that's going to save you. But we would do that in school to drill in case of a nuclear attack. I do remember that. I remember, obviously, President Kennedy being killed. Um, and then I kind of don't remember anything about the world until the 60s later on when I was old enough to get drafted and when Vietnam was taking place. I remember Martin Luther King being shot. I remember Bobby Kennedy being shot the same year, the year I graduated. And then I don't remember anything from then on until I got radicalized in my early 20s through things I was thinking, reading, and seeing. But for the most part, I was oblivious to the world around me. And I want to say this to the young people today. You need to understand the purposes of God in the world today, why things are happening in the world in which you live, what God is doing in the world today, and what that means for your life, for your calling as a follower of Christ, and for your future. And so you don't, maybe you don't want to think about things too much because you either think they are unimportant to you, they don't affect you as a younger person, or you don't understand them maybe. I want to say to you that you must think about them and pray about them, but most importantly, ask God, Lord, what does this mean for me? Because it has a huge impact on the way you will live your life. Paul gives us in these two incredible statements of faith truth that will sustain us through life. And as is typical in most of my weeks as I'm preparing or thinking or praying and reading, much of it is stimulated by conversations with Kath. Questions she'll ask me, things that she'll say out loud that she's thinking. And I try to answer her the best I can at the moment, but it inevitably it ends up where it takes me a few hours and maybe days to prayerfully consider those things. And I feel like what I'm teaching today is an answer to something she did ask me this week. Because this truth will ground us and give us purpose and give us hope in the world in which we live right now. In Romans chapter 11, now we are coming to a conclusion in Paul's writing to the amazing book of Romans, amazing letter, where he's laid out an incredible understanding of what it means to be saved by grace through faith alone. Faith in Christ by the grace of God alone, we are justified. He speaks of this second Adam who has come, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Another man who lived on the earth. He, he teaches us in Romans chapter 6 what it means to have died with Christ and to have risen with Christ. And how to live our lives as though now risen in Christ. As though risen from the dead. And in chapter 7, how he addresses the issue of, of, of the law and the power of sin being derived from the inability to keep the law. 
And in Romans 8, this amazing statement to begin it, there is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. And then he goes into a few chapters where he speaks of the Gentiles and the Jew and the relationship and the amazing truth of God bringing the Gentiles in. And now at the end of chapter 11, he ends it with this doxology, as though it it comes out of everything that he has just been saying. He he ends this amazing section of, of these 11 chapters with this praise. And he closes this section on the wonders of redemption with this amazing doxology. So this cry of praise will now begin what will become practical application in chapters 12 and 13 and following. It is a shout of amen, of praise to thanksgiving for God. And he says in verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and inscrutable his ways. Look at Colossians 2. He says something very similar. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. It's good to see the church in Laodicea is still functioning, isn't it? How great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul wrote to the Colossian church and to the Laodicean church, and he admitted and confessed that he was struggling because he had never seen them face to face. But he wanted their hearts to be encouraged to reach this full understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom were hidden all, he says, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind, into my mind, when I think about God, is the most important thing about us. And then Paul goes on in this Romans 11 text, and he quotes from two men, Isaiah and Job, two men who had been undone at one point in their lives by a revelation of God. Two men who had become undone by how they had finally understood their God. Regarding these truths of Isaiah, I want to read to you just a portion out of this book that some of the guys and I have recently studied. And I want to read what was written 
by this man regarding the text in Isaiah 40 that actually Paul quotes here in Romans 11. And he says this, he says, what is abundantly evident from Isaiah 40 is that this God is not just a greater being than us. Now listen carefully. This God is not just a greater being than us, as if he were merely different in degree, like a type of Superman. No, this God is different in kind. He is a different type of being altogether. He is the creator, not the created. From this foundational difference, what theologians have called the creator-creature distinction, every other difference follows. He is not placed into the hands of the creature, but holds every person, even entire nations, in the palm of his hand. He is not limited to a specific place to be put up on a stand, like the idols crafted out of gold, but he transcends any one place and is everywhere at once with his whole being. Even when he sits, so to speak, he sits on his throne judging the nations. He is not a God whose ears have been fashioned from melted stone, but a God who hears the prayers of his people, knows their every need, and therefore can and will save them from their enemies. There is no one like this God. And then he goes on, if I can read this as well. Speaking of Augustine, he says, Augustine once wrote that whenever we think about God, we are aware that our thoughts are quite inadequate to their object and incapable of truly grasping him as he is. Yet, Scripture commands us to think about the Lord, our God, always, though we can never think about him as he deserves. How then should we approach him, since at all times we should be praising him and blessing him, and yet no words of ours are capable of expressing And This is Augustine. I begin by asking him to help me, understand and explain what I have in mind and to pardon any blunders I may make. For I am as keenly aware of my weakness as of my willingness. And then the author says this about Augustine. That may be one of my favorite passages Augustine ever wrote. Every time he sat down to write about God, he put down his pen, got on his knees and prayed. He knew he would never exhaust the mystery of the one who is incomprehensible. He also knew that his finite attempt to describe him who is incomprehensible was tainted by his own weakness. To describe God, Augustine desperately needed God's own help. How inscrutable are his ways. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. See, this is the great need, I think, today in the church that I was alluding to last week. It's the missing link. 
It's that which is missing in our hearts that somehow keeps us from wholly abandoning ourselves to Christ. It's that which keeps us from comprehending the mandate that we've been given by God, a very gracious and a very loving but a very comprehensive mandate to live our lives on the earth as witnesses of this new creation life. This is the great need today in the church, to see God, to know God, to understand these depths and these riches and this great mystery that is Christ. And this is why we have become passionless and passive and prayerless, because we have lost sight of God's greatness. Our sense of awe of God has waned. We have reduced him to our buddy. We have made him our means of gaining wealth and personal happiness. Or we, as the deists of old and of today, have made him simply a God who sits idly by as we live our lives and as the world languishes in its sin until it finally winds down to its struggles with a darkness that seemingly cannot be overcome. Many of you might feel hopeless today. I'm trying to speak to that. Never lose hope. No, the church must engage again. We must engage in the world. We must engage in society. Not in a distorted understanding of what it means to be the people of God in the world today, with a great sense of destiny and a purpose that is founded on the initial mandate given to us by God to take this message, to take this truth of who God is into the world and impact it with that truth. We have to engage again. And we have to resist the theologies of retreat and defeat that now basically characterize most of Western Christianity. We have to engage in order to see all things brought under the Lordship of Christ. Our lives, our families, our children, our businesses, in our nation by praying, working, and living as a prophetic witness of the new creation. And then to go to verse 36. This one statement, so rich, so profound, so crucial to our Christian experience. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Say that with me. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We need to meditate on the whole range of God's works in creation and providence. Let me summarize in a couple of statements what Paul is saying in that one sentence. All things are of him. Now listen, all things are of him as their source. They are through him in their means. 
and they are to him as their end. They are of him in their plan. They are through him in their working, in their outworking, and they are to him in the glory which they are to produce. Let's break it down, each one, one at a time, quickly, from him, from him. For all things are from him. For Paul, this, most often it began with, God, it, with Paul's theology. In fact, most of Paul's theology began with creation. Everything that Paul taught pretty much, doesn't matter what it was in the New Testament, it always originated in his understanding of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Verse 36 begins, for from him. Colossians 1 speaks of this, as we read this earlier. For by him all things were created, he says, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Everything that can be seen and everything that is unseen, including angels, principalities, demons, whatever exists in the spirit world, both evil and good, both light and darkness, and everything visible, obviously, in the physical world. It was all created by him. It came from him. So Paul says the same truth in two different ways. All things are from him, and in another sense, he says, are by him. Listen to Spurgeon's words. It cannot be doubted that whatever may be the whole drama of history in creation and providence, there is a high and mysterious sense in which it is all of God. It is all of God. The sin is not God's, but the temporary permission of its existence formed part of the foreknown scheme. Now, this is mind-blowing. This is offensive to many, for sure, non-believers would not get it, and many Christians don't get it. It's the, it's has a temporary permission in its, its existence because of the foreknown scheme of God. And to our faith, the intervention of moral evil and the purity of the divine character do neither of them diminish the force of our belief that the whole scope of history is of God in the fullest sense. Today, what is going on in our world, whether it's in the United States of America or in another part of the world, is God's story. It is the hand of God at work. It's from God. It's of God. It's by God's hand. And men of God throughout scriptures understood this. Joseph understood this. So he was able to assuage his brother's guilt by saying to them very simply, what you intended, when you intended evil for me, God intended for good in order to accomplish a day like this to preserve the lives of many people in Genesis 50 verse 20. He said, no, 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 guys. This is not of you. This is not about you. This is about God. Daniel understood it while he was in Babylon. That's why he was able to stay so strong. He understood that he was where he needed to be by the providence of God. 
I spoke about this when we looked at the book of Esther. Mordecai understood it. Maybe for such a time as this. You are where you are, Esther. And listen, and of course the Lord Jesus knew this, which is why it says in the scriptures that he set his face like a flint toward the cross. All things, listen, are from him. You go, well, that doesn't comfort me. I believe it, but it doesn't comfort me. Well, let me help you then. Not only are all things from him, but all things are through him. Of course, the from him is where most of us stop with our thoughts of God's providence. That's as far as we go regarding the sovereignty of God or the providence of God. We believe that God, all things are from him. We have a realization that God has been at work in our lives, that he's at work in the world in an unseen way. But Paul doesn't stop with the from them, from, from him. He goes on to the next statement. They are also through him. He says the same thing in Colossians 1. He says, all things are through him. All things exist by his activity and through his power. Hebrews 1 says it this way. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, who he appointed heir of all things. Listen, through whom also he created the world. But the writer doesn't, go, doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says this. Regarding the Lord Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now listen to this. Listen to this. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. R.C. Sproul used to say this all the time. I loved it. He, he would say, there are no maverick molecules in God's universe. He upholds all things by the word of his power. The sun rises in the morning to us in our experience because God ordains it so. The tide God has ordained, the night, the seasons. The laws of nature, those things that govern our world that are discoverable, all things are through him. All things are through him. This is a truth that is very difficult, I think, to grasp for us, all things being through him, but it's really glorious in its implication. This truth speaks to me of what Paul meant when he said, now listen, all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his eternal purpose. This is what he meant when he said all things work together for the good because all things are working through him, of him. In other words, all of human history has banks 
that determine its flow and direction that were established by God. You have banks in your life that God has foreordained that would set the course of your life. When you would be born, when you will live, and when you will die. And how you will die. Now in the midst of that, the banks that God has ordained, we live with a will that allows us to participate in obedience to the will and the direction of God. We can resist it. We can kick against it. We can try to run away from it. But let me tell you, you will never, ever evade the banks that God has established for your life, the course of your life, ultimately. And you sit here today as a believer in Christ because God has foreordained that it would be so. Paul is saying that everything is guided by God's plan in Christ, through him. History flows through God's eternal plan to bring all things under Christ's lordship. Oh, the wonders of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, regarding this truth of the through him truth, there is no clearer or more glorious example than the cross, than redemption's plan. It is through Christ and through his redemption that we have peace with God, that we've been reconciled to God. The crucified Christ is the means by which we are cleansed, by which we are saved, and by which we are freed from sins, shame, and guilt. It's through, it's in Christ. All creation, all life, all that is visible and invisible is sustained and upheld by the word of his power and the redemption that came in Christ and came through Christ is the mean by which God is renewing all things. Grace originated in the heart of God. Grace flowed from the heart of God. The means by which it flowed was through Christ's sacrificial death. For from him and through him are all And you might say, I'm still not comforted. I think you're getting more comforted, though. You see, there should, be, never be, there should never be a sense for a believer of losing our way. I'm not saying we don't get confused or discouraged. Of course we do. I'm not saying we don't have times of Great, great questioning. Of course we do. We're human beings. I'm not saying we're ever, we're ever without those feelings or emotions or senses. But what I'm saying, there should never be a time where we lose our way in hopelessness, in despair, 
in fear. I mean, the greatness of God and the greatness of who he is to us, Paul says it's, it's inscrutable. You can't fully know it. But they are not just from him, and this is so beautiful and glorious, and through him, listen, they are to him. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1. Same, same language, same words, same thoughts in Colossians 1 as Romans 11. This is the way he says it in Colossians 1. All things were created for him. So the Lord Jesus Christ is not only the source, and he's not only the means, but he is the goal of all of creation. He's the goal of all that God's purposes are. You see, that's why to worship like we did this morning and to sing exclusively of God puts me in my right place. It takes me out of the picture and it exalts him and him alone. And what is amazing is that in the kindness of God and in the grace of God, I find my place without having to look for it without having to struggle for it, without having to fight for it, without demanding it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. There's a principle involved here. But when God is exalted and I am humbled, I am in the safest place and the healthiest place I can be. Beloved, the great glory of all of is that in the work of creation, everything is unto him. Everything will praise the Lord. It is how he designed it. God must have, listen to this statement, God must have the highest motive, being that he is God. And there can be no higher motive conceivable than his own glory. Well, God's an egotist. No, he's a perfect, perfect being. Perfect in every way, in holiness, in righteousness and justice, in love, in wisdom, incomprehensible, in his infinitude. There could be no higher motive in the heart of God than his own glory. This is the cry of heaven. I'm going to close. Turn to Re Revelation 5. I'm coming down for a landing here. This is the cry of heaven. This glory that is unto him. And we find it again and again, actually, in the book of Revelation. But let's just look at one text, verses 11 through 14. Revelation 5, 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power 
and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and every other word we can think of and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. For from him and through him and to him is everything that's going on in the world around us. It's all in the hands of God. He is orchestrating the banks of history, bringing about his purposes. I live in it. I breathe in it. You and I live and breathe in it. We experience it. We see it. But we see it with clarity. We see it understanding what it is that God is doing. We are those of whom Daniel spoke of that at the end, those who have understanding will gain wisdom. And those with wisdom will have understanding. He said, seal it up, Daniel, until the end. Now is the end. Now it's unsealed. And we see it, and we understand it. What is it that we see and understand? That all things are from him and through him and to him. I thought about this this week as I was praying. I thought this will be the final and ultimate answer to the countless times this question has been asked by God's people. Why did you allow this, Lord? And the answer is, for my glory. For my glory. On the earth, I don't understand it. When I get there, I will. On the earth, that answer is not sufficient because my mind cannot comprehend it. When I get to heaven, when the Lord says to me, now you see, son, that what you experienced and what you knew and what was happening in your life was for my glory. And I'll say, yes, Lord. For all things are from you and through you and to you. I love the way Paul says that in Romans 11. He says all things are to him. He doesn't just say they're for him. He says they're to him. That is their direction. That is their goal. Listen, that is their reason. That is their purpose. All things are to him. My prayer is that we would live our lives with passion, not passive, but full of faith and prayerful with great, great purpose because of who we understand our great God to be and who we understand we are in his hands for his purposes. Stand with me as we read this last slide. Another quote of Spurgeon's. Courage then, beloved. When you think that matters go against the cause of God, when the enemy hisses in your ears this note, God is overcome. His plans are spoiled. 
His gospel is thrust back. The honor of his son is stained. Tell the enemy, no, it is not so. To him are all things. God's defeats are victories. God's weakness is stronger than man. And even the foolishness of the Most High is wiser than man's wisdom. And at the last, we shall see most clearly that it is so. And the church says, hallelujah. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you today. We worship you. We are grateful for a man like Paul who would see by the Spirit of God these truths. These are the things that prompted him, Lord. These are the things that moved him. These are the things that caused him to pour his life out the way that he did. This understanding is what gave him the courage and the strength to follow you unto death. These truths, Lord, are what gripped his heart and caused him to preach to all men the unsearchable riches of Christ. It was this, Lord, that gave him strength to stand before kings and before Caesars and before princes and before slaves. It was this truth that gave purpose to his life. It was this that he prayed for the churches that they would know what was the depth of the calling of God upon their lives and the glorious riches of his inheritance in his people. Father, we pray that we would become this kind of people in this day. We ask in Jesus' name that you would cause this church to be an instrument in your hands. That we, O oh God, would be a people who live truly a life that is filled with clarity and purpose and understanding in our faith. May we be bold. May we be courageous. May we be strong. May we be kind and loving and compassionate and just. All of these things which characterize you, O oh God, they are needed in the day in which we live more than ever. We thank you, Father. We lift up our nation to you. We lift up, O oh God, the church in this nation. May she be awakened to who she truly is. In this city, may we be, O oh God, used of you powerfully. Though we be few, may we be mighty in your hand. We thank you today. We thank you, Father, for what you're doing in us. We love you. And we thank you, Father God, for the privilege of living for you. In Jesus' name, amen.